Real Fun DC. Hospitality and a little bit of sass are always on the menu. Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. Hey everyone and welcome to Industry Night with me, Nikki Nellis, the show that takes you on a deep dive into the happenings of the hospitality industry. Now sometimes there's a focus on culture and sometimes there's a focus on travel trends and sometimes there's a focus on passion projects, but it all comes back to the industry. So I'm so grateful for you all joining me again today. I mean, it is kind of kooky out there. Um, everyone's trying to get in all their events and festivals and everything before the midterm elections, because everybody knows that's where the focus is. So if you're in an area where you can vote early, get there and do it. In Maryland, we started voting today, uh, but wherever you are, it is so important that you get out and vote. Um, so openings, events, festivals, and galas, so many are happening all over the area. You know where to find the details on that. The list, are you on it.com, the online e-zine that lists everything happening in the DC metro area. Of course, you want to follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Although I'm not really much on Facebook because I really don't like it. And Twitter may be going down the drain, so we may try something new. But for right now, that's what's happening. So it is so, so good to go out. And while I don't love the cooler temps, um, every time I go out, whether it's brunch, lunch, or dinner, you know what I see? I see people, lots and lots of people, and not dead people, like real people, live people, all out. They're eating, they're drinking, they're cavorting, and it feels so good. Now, over the last few days, I've popped into several places, including the new Stellina in Mount Vernon. So, you know, Antonio and Matteo, I love them. They are these really handsome Italian men with the tiniest little bodies I've ever seen. It always looks like they're wearing like, like children's clothes, but they're very healthy. So you should follow their diet, which is heavy of pizza and pasta and fabulous Italian wine. Um, so you know their incredible fare from their other places, Neapolitan pizzas, classic pastas, predominantly from Northern Italy. Um, now, if you know, you know the space they're in. It's historic. And it was originally a Waffle House. So that fabulous neon Waffle House sign is still outside. So when you go, it's not a diner, people. And having said that, because of some confusion, the boys have launched a waffle menu um, and are now open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And you know, I had to taste the waffles and I tried all of them and they are delicious. So uh, carb lovers, heaven, pizza, waffles, and pasta, worth every penny, worth every calorie, go check it out. Janine Prime from St. James was on Foodie and the Beast this weekend. She came into the studio with so much food that I would be remiss not mentioning it. Her Caribbean or modern Caribbean spot um, is amazing. I've been there multiple times and I am such a fan of the pork pow steamed buns, which Janine brought in a bunch of, I was grateful for. But I did not try the paratha platter, which she brought in studio. And that's an assortment of goat, beef, and vegetable curries uh, with a variety of hot sauces to spike things up a bit, and the paratha bread, which is this flat layered bread um, that has a 
doughy texture, but it's crisp on top. Anyway, it's my new kryptonite um, and I ate all of it. It made an incredible meal. And if you haven't had a chance to go to St. James, I do highly recommend it. And the cocktails are great there as well. Now, lunch again is in people. I mean, I don't know about power lunches, but I do know about long lunches because I've had several. Everyone wants to meet for lunch and I'm totally here for it. Now, you can go to the list areyouonit.com because we have a list of every restaurant in the city that is serving lunch. Um, and there are several who have just opened their doors. But I did just go to Il Patio and had such a lovely meal. Gorgeous radicchio with goat cheese and pears a hearty pasta. I think I'm like in a pasta place because of my recent trip to Italy with um, locally foraged shrooms and a great bronzino steamed in paper uh, with lots of fresh vegetables. It's just a lovely meal for lunch and everything was the right size and it was perfect. Okay, so I hope you're all getting your gorgeous gourds because I'm gourd obsessed and uh, we're moving into November. So let's get on with the show. Now, a while back, uh, I did a show with a variety of black spirit makers, all from the DMV area, and we went deep on the business side of the industry and what they had to go through to get access to everything they needed in order to be successful. Now, a few weeks back, Colin Asar, Asare Apia, did I say that right, Colin? You said it perfectly well. Okay. <laughs> so Colin joined me on Foodie and the Beast to talk about his book, Black Mix Excellence, a comprehensive guide to black mixology. Because he and his co-author, um, Tamika, where's Tamika's name? Tamika. Tamika Hall. Yes, Tamika. Yes, sorry. Yes. So he and his co-author, Tamika Hall, realized that there was a huge chunk of history missing from the conversation of mixology. And they were like, where are the black and brown people? Ta-da. This is the book that was created out of it. So Colin, it's so nice to see you again. Thank you for joining me. It's great to see you again. Always a pleasure to be invited uh, to your show. Thank you so much. Well, I appreciate it. So let's, for those who don't know you, because you have you have a rich history yourself. You've got a lot of name dropping to do. So you've been doing a lot of different things. So let's talk about your trajectory just a bit. Yeah, well, I started obviously from my accent. I'm not from around these parts. I started off in sunny London and I was lucky enough at the time when we started, there was a real growth in the industry uh, to learn from the history of uh, cocktail making using premium ingredients, fresh juices, and really making uh, cocktails properly. We're moving out of that disco era um, of cocktails where every, all the ingredients um, came out tins and cans. Uh, no more red Morello cherries. Instead, really beautiful fresh cherries that had been marinated in cognacs or other brandies or whiskeys. Um, and of course, as I said, using premium ingredients and also looking through history and looking at the classic standards of cocktails and using those as the benchmark and the framework for all the cocktails that we, um, we were creating. And it was an exciting time in England. This was, uh, I'm not going to date myself, but this was a fair few years ago. But um, so what are we talking about? Are we talking about like the late 80s, 90s? 90s, we, yeah. Definitely 90s. in the 90s, yeah. Definitely so in the 90s. What do you think was the, what was the spur of that? Because 
I mean, obviously, it's now an international trend to, you know, yeah. with cocktails today compared to what they were back in the 70s and 80s, right, and before. And it did percolate in London. So what do you, what do you attribute the, the real inspiration to look into our past and realize that yeah. there's more to cocktails than just getting drunk? Yeah, a lot of it came from the kitchen, actually, it came from chefs. Um, a lot of chefs um, were uh, really being, it was the rise of that celebrity chef. I was lucky enough to work with Jamie Oliver, actually, the naked one. Uh, we opened a restaurant together called 15, but more about that later. But yeah. we ended up um, really learning from the chefs and realizing that using items out of the chef's pantries allowed us a, a, a huge kaleidoscope of flavors and scents and ingredients that we didn't necessarily have behind the bar. So that really did spur us as bartenders to get more creative, following the same paths as chefs, mm. because there was a rise of people being interested in culinary, people going out eating more, um, people's eating and drinking habits started to say changing, people were socialising more. It was booming in the 90s, big hair, big shoulder pads. I remember I was there. Everyone <laughs> looks fabulous. And it was about time of people really connecting and there were, new, there were a new wave of bars and restaurants that um, all of us ended up working in and really powered forward a new way of people engaging with bartenders. The whole terminology of mixologists was resurrected again. The earlier mixologists were in the early 1800s, but during the 90s, mixologists were um, appreciated as craft um, as, as technicians and as craft bartenders because they really knew how to uh, use ingredients in a way that hadn't been uh, done before or the art had been lost because we came out of the war, of the Second World War, everything um, ended up uh, becoming canned, as I mentioned earlier. earlier. Everything was in tins and packets. You had your orange juice and cranberry and so on, all in packets. So that was what we had. And then we had all these blue disco drinks and red drinks. You know, you, you remember back in the day, it was all mud puckers and um, very uh, fun. Um, interesting sugar. Names. I'll tell you what I remember. Sugar. I remember sugar. I remember, sugar. I remember cocktails in the 80s, like late 80s, yeah. early 90s. Mm. And it was sugar 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 all sugar like there's no such thing as balance do you know what i mean it was just all sugar yeah it was all sugar and it wasn't about balance it was about um it was all about volume it was about big drinks long line nice tea remember that um the long line nice tea was really that cocktail that <laughs> to me is the uh, is the pinnacle of the abundance of the early or the eight, basically 80s, right? right. Um, but then what happened was cocktails like Cosmo came along and people started focusing on really making a great martini. And mm. then research started going into like the three martini lunch, how and why uh, these things happened. And then at the at time you had this growth in vodka, which was at the time was the bartender's handshake, very much like what tequila is now. And and also other and other spirits like uh, rums and so on that you're seeing um, on the rise, but vodka was the um, the bartender's handshake, and everyone was making think? great but vodka martinis, and that led to the Cosmo, which led to the whole rise of 
um, new age cocktails. You had the espresso martini came out at the same time. The porn star martini came out mm-hmm. at the same time. And these were all classic standard cocktails that used new ingredients and really captured the imagination of the general public. But let me ask you a question, because you mentioned vodka. And, mm. you know, I, when I think back, this is pre-me in this industry. Yeah. Was there a financial push, a marketing push by vodka companies? I mean, I think of the absolute ads, you know, what's there? Because it's not like today where, you know, there's so much product on the market, you know, with local distilleries and, you know, really niche things, you know, uh, products that are available. So do you think there's something, why vodka? Was there a marketing, like, what do you, what do you attribute that to? Uh, vodka was really the catalyst um, for the growth in the industry because it's a very e- easy ingredient uh, to work with, but then also at the same time, it's one of the most difficult. Uh, one thing I always say to a bartender is if you can craft me a great cocktail and a balanced drink using vodka that I can actually taste, that actually has a mouthfeel and actually has a texture in a cocktail, um, then you definitely uh, deserve to be named as a mixologist. We, I remember, we used to back in the day um, ensure that we could work with vodka because it was one of the hardest uh, spirits to work with, even though it seems really easy, right? Um, it's, as um, someone said, vodka was like chicken. Um, it's like chicken for a chef. Right. Um, you have to have it on the menu. Um, but there's so many ways of using it and so many interesting um, global and inspiring ways of using it. Vodka as well was a spirit that all the general public loved. Yeah. And through premiumization and brands coming along and offering us different varieties and different ways of uh, using vodka, I think that really did push um, the industry to a, a different level. I've always said that if it wasn't for vodka, we wouldn't have the. Um, uh, the uh, movement that we have now within the industry. And also, if it wasn't for craft beer as well, we wouldn't have the boom in distilleries opening up because you see what happened in the 80s, 90s, and the craft beer movement is now happening in um, distilling. And well, I, I, it's actually, cycles. it's really interesting. I was going to, it's, you know, there's no chicken and egg here. You can no. see. If, if we attribute it to vodka, then we can see the growth in uh, mixology. Yeah, which it takes us to the next, uh, my next question, but then you see the growth in beer and even wine. So, you know, it, it takes all, and, and chocolate and, and makers, you know, people, it's, it's, it's very cyclical. But right. what's interesting to me is that, like you said, before the war, World War II, before those yeah. wars, you know, this was a part of American society and it was more global, um, yeah. didn't know as much as we do now, but the fact that it's coming back, it's not a fad, it's not a trend. No, it was been, it's been there before. It's, you right. know, the thing is, it's been there before. If you look at a melting pot, that is America and uh, parts of Europe, everyone brought all of their, um, their culinary and their drinking cultures to the States with them. And prior to the war, loads of those uh, cultures were thriving. And then, obviously, um, we had the war, pro- prohibition, then the war um, really did sh- change and shape the way that uh, people um, imbibed. And also, there was obviously, um, there were some uh, things that 
uh, helped shape and change uh, the way that people interacted. I mean, more and more women were um, going into bars, mm -hmm. which used to be the bastion of just men. Right. You know? So now you had women going into bars. So there's all these, all these societal changes that came about to uh, create this dynamic environment for um, bartenders to really rise and bars to rise and be those beacons of the community um, that they are now. I mean, there's, there's, there's no more exciting time than now to be involved in the industry. We can look back in history and see what we did in the past. It helps us create um, what we're doing in the present and is going to afford us to be able to really propel us into the future and create some new dynamic A cocktails and ways of people socializing and interacting through the spaces that we're in, through um, through technology, for mm -hmm. example, you know, now, I mean, there's so many bars that you go to that uh, you, the menus are on phones. Menus are on phones. I just did an, uh, an immersive experience, yeah. right, where it was totally 4D and, you know, mm. meal, food came out and cocktails came out, but it was all a part of the experience. Yeah. I don't know if that's something I want to do every day, but it was definitely interesting. Yeah. But I do see, listen, you know, definitely mid 80s, it started that going out for dinner was the show, right? You didn't need yeah. to do dinner in the show. Dining out was the activity. And mm -hmm. that has grown and included uh, drinking, you know, and going to cocktail bars and cocktail lounges, like all of that has drastically changed how we operate. But I, I, what I'd like to get back to is, as you were doing on your personal journey, yeah. in behind the bar, yeah. how did that start? And then what made you look back in history? Because you didn't have to do that, but you clearly yeah. did do that. Yeah, I did do that. Uh, thanks. Um, that's, that's, that's a great um, uh, segue, actually, because uh, what we all did was we all understood or we were taught by uh, the chefs that to go forward, you have to uh, look back. So we started reading a lot of the cocktail books that um, were um, around at the time. I think at the time we had, there was this blog, I can't remember it. Oh God, I can't remember the name of it. It was like Drink Boy or something by Robert okay. Hess. He had that up. I think it's still, it, may, it may still even be around. Um, it was in the times of do, 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 internet. Um, <laughs> AOL. AOL. Yeah, mail. You got, got mail. mail. Right. Yeah, so basically we, um, we all used to jump on these like chat groups and stuff and swap ideas and look back at old recipes to see how we could use them as foundations to create new uh, classics. And that's exactly what we did, using modern ingredients, new brands. Um, and that's all that chefs, in fact, as well were doing at the time. They were looking at classic um, ingredients and classic, classic, um, and classic techniques. And they were using them to basically to move there uh, to move the needle. When did looking back to prehistory, the 1800s, to looking to black and brown bartenders or cooks in the kitchen, how did you go about finding those narratives? Because it's not like they were there for everybody to see. No, they weren't. And that's the crazy thing. If we look at the history of cocktail culture, uh, cocktail culture, there was a lot of People all across, you know, um, all across the South, in the, in all the uh, big houses, the slaves would make cocktails 
um, for all these banquets and dinners and um, so on. Now, if you look at the history of like, you know, um, uh, like five star uh, kind of dining, a lot of it came out of the South as well. You know, classic um, standards of service came out of the South. And we find that there was nothing that was really written down because it was intentionally set that way. If you were black or brown or slave, you could not write anything down because by law, if you could read or write, it could be a death sentence. Mm -hmm. We write that in the book. It's definitely clearly stated in the book. And so obviously nothing would be written, could be written down. It wasn't until after um, you saw the uh, War of Independence that you saw um, more things being written about black mixologists. Mm-hmm. You, they still didn't write down their uh, recipes and their stories because for a lot of them, this was their way of life. If you look at someone like John Dabney, for example, um, he and Dick Francis, they were some of the first black mixologists to be uh, prominent and to be written about um, because of their, and they were in the DMV area. And it was for their prowess of making the cocktail of the mint julep, which was a massive cocktail um, back then. But then they were making it with brandies and not necessarily American whiskey as well. Mm. You know, so even a cocktail like the mint julep has gone through some iterations. So for them to be making uh, the cocktails in uh, the 1800s, then that means that cocktail had been around for a lot longer. And it had been obviously um, adapted and changed depending on what A, what p- ingredients people had. And also people would put their own personal um, uh, kind of heritage and their spins on it, um, using ingre- some ingredients um, that they had in their um, cultural cabinet, as I like to call it now. Uh-huh. Uh, they would add that to um, the cocktail to give it a little bit of, um, a little bit of, uh, pers- a little bit of personal, um, their personality, a little bit of personal shine on their part. But black mixologists have been the benchmark of uh, the cocktail industry from when the cocktail was first um, created. I mean, if we if we go back uh, through history, one of the things that I always um, remind people is that. Cocktails as we know it didn't really exist until 1805, around about 1805, when um, there was an ice baron. His name was Frederick, Frederick Tudor. He's, you can read all about Frederick Tudor. Um, he basically had this crazy idea of introducing ice to cocktails and to keep things cold and to use ice as a preservative. Prior to that, people were using salt, herbs, and spices to preserve things. Mm-hmm. This changed the way people drank their cocktails because now instead of having all of their cocktails served at room temperature because um, what people used to do was they used to drink communal cocktails like punches people started moving to single serve cocktails mm. which then led to the rise of cocktails like the mint julep because whenever you look at mint julep you see that crowning of shaved ice and that tower of mint and that whole garnish a game is pretty wild when it comes to uh, those cocktails. But someone like him and that technology of adding ice to cocktails made a whole change to um, the uh, cocktail culture. But bartenders like John Dabney and uh, Dick Francis really capitalized on this new innovation 
and they were known for their amazing garnishes and their beautiful tasting cocktails. That's, I, until... I can tell you, that's fascinating. I never, I mean, when you say it, it makes all the sense in the world because mm -hmm. obviously the addition of ice is, is life-changing, right? It changes yeah. everything. But when I think of a mint julep and I think of the cone of ice, yeah. you know, shaved ice coming up, I did not, I never knew the mm -hmm. story behind it. That's fascinating. Yeah. It made, it made cocktails like the mint julep possible. Isn't that crazy? I, now, I, I will tell you, I just, um, I just did an interview with Michael Twitty. And oh, you know, his, he's amazing. His, oh, isn't he fat? Oh, what a great I story. Love him. Although I'll tell you, man, the two of you are like comparable <laughs> in storytelling. That is I've worked with him. Um, I've worked with him in the past. So, I mean, you know, yeah. but you're both great storytellers. Um, but, you know, but his discussion of the um, history of enslaved cooks and their contribution, contribution, their creation of so much that we enjoy today and how we eat, drink, all of it is, it's such an important part of history. I mean, I, I, I believe it's really, really important that people know all about it. Oh yeah, it's really important. I, I always, I've always said to all bartenders who I mentor, uh, know and understand your history. I mean, when I first came to this country, I discovered um, I found out about Tom Bullock, who was the first African-American to have a cocktail book about. He, had, um, he was the first African-American to have written a cocktail book that was published. Mm -hmm. um, he published it in 1917, what happened in 1917, where the onset of prohibition. Mm -hmm. So his book literally disappeared. When I first started bartending, we were told that you know the first documented bar manuals of books were from the 1860s, Professor Jerry Thomas, handlebar moustache, white guy with braces and so on. That was the classic iconic picture of what a bartender mixologist was supposed to look like. Right. Tom Bullock completely changed that narrative because what we have is we have in Tom Bullock's book, The Ideal Bartender, we mention it in our book, Black Mixolence. He basically was the bookend to the last golden era of cocktails. So all his cocktails in his book are really good reflections and representations of what had happened during the last era, golden era of cocktails. Mm. We brought um, Tom Bullock's book back. I think, um, yeah, a friend of mine, Greg Bohm um, from Cocktail Kingdom, he re-released the book, I think about eight, 10 years ago. Okay. Uh, he re-released the book so that everyone then could actually appreciate the cocktails that were in it and also started to celebrate um, black mix, uh, mixologists because people started to understand that, oh, hang on a minute, the history that we've been told and that we've learned, um, we maybe need to really uh, take a bit more of a deep dive into it. Right. So we started taking um, more of an interest in exactly who, what, when, who did what, who did what, uh, who were they, how did they, um, contribute to cocktail culture and one of the um one of the groups uh that i um love talking about is the uh, black mixologist club which was in uh, washington dc it was at the howard theater i actually did an event when howard theater first opened yeah. we did an event to celebrate the black mixologist uh club and to do and to actually award some of tom bullock's family an award 
for Tom Bullock's contributions uh, to the industry. The family were really touched. They didn't understand the impact that Tom Bullock had had on cocktail culture. So mm. even his family didn't understand his impact. They thought, oh, we've, we knew as a family that he was a big deal, but we didn't understand until they walked into this room and there's like two, 300 people um, in this room for their great uncle. That's kind of almost tear inducing. That's a yeah. beautiful story. Um, well, I, I, because we don't have all day, because I can talk all day to you. I want to fast forward to the creation of the book. What was the impetus for it? I know you, you started gathering all these stories, but what did you decide that you wanted to put in Black Mix Elegance? Um, yeah, the thing is with Black Mix Elegance, it was, um, I was approached by Tamika. Uh, she used to write a, um, a blog and from her, um, from her and out of her blog, she discovered that there were a lot of black mixologists that were around the US that really didn't have an outlet and that didn't have a voice and that weren't being celebrated because they didn't necessarily work in the mixology bars that you see now. There's a lot of trends and culture that comes out of a lot of these other bars, these local uh, community bars, um, multicultural bars around uh, the US. You can, you can travel all around the South um, here in New York and go up to Harlem, Brooklyn, and so on and so forth. They're amazing mixologists working in these bars. She wanted to provide a platform for them to really be able to show uh, what they're doing now with the skills that they've been taught, what they've learned in the past, the skills that they've been taught now, the ingredients that they have now, and how they're shaping uh, the culture. And you see that in the cocktail book. There's um, a whole series of um, recipes. I've contributed a lot. And there are other mixologists from all around the country as well that uh, live in now that you can go and visit um, in their bars. Carl Franz being a great example of someone who's, um, who's definitely making um, a movement and a name for himself as a black mixologist. And he's based in Harlem. He's um, he's kind of like the grandfather of the new modern day renaissance of cocktail culture in Harlem. And if anyone knows anything about Harlem, it's definitely the hotbed of um, uh, society when it comes to black culture here in New York. Um, also, we have bartenders working out um, Chicago, um, California, all getting involved and offering their uh, recipes. And I think it's really important now more than ever to have somewhere like the Black Mix, uh, Black Mix Lunch book, where we can tell the stories of uh, these bartenders. Because, hey, if we don't write about it, who is going to write about no, it? No, it's a really good Personally, point. I don't, I don't no. know if you know AJ Johnson. She's, I love uh, a, yeah, I love AJ. She's a good friend. And, um, you mm. know, she is out talking cocktails and history as well. You yeah. know, she's... Um, She's great. She actually just won um, at the Embassy Chef Challenge here two weeks ago. She was representing the Dominican Republic. Yeah, she that's, won. My, that's my girl. <laughs> yeah, 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 she's brilliant. Where does she work at again? Serenata. Serenata, that's it. Serenata yeah, here in New Great place. Great. And, I've, and see someone like her as well. I've watched her grow uh, through the industry. And it's just really great to see um, people like her um, grow and learn from people like myself because you know I'm old as hell and I've been doing this for a long time. But we try as often as we can to empower the next generation 
moving forward. Say it's okay to go out there, be creative, use everything that you've learned, use what we've learned and re rely on us as a resource and go out there and um, share your experience and share your passion and your creativity. Because what we've noticed is, you know, diversity within this industry is great for everybody because what it means is people are bringing their cultural cabinets to bear on cocktail culture. And black mixologists have always been doing that because they, you know, being black is not a monolith, right? You, we're from all over uh, the world, from many different parts of the world with new ingredients, tastes, uh, techniques, all adding to this whole melting pot, which creates a really unique experience, I think, for guests, because that's what it's about at the end of the day. The guests sitting in front of us at the bar, trying these new cocktails, having a great time and connecting with each other. Well, I I love the book. I think it's probably something that probably needs to be updated kind of regularly as yes. it grows. Um, I have two questions before we wrap yes. up. The first question is, and I'm, I can't help it, I'm stuck on that mint julep in the ice. Yeah. So uh, we also all think of, you know, glassware, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm kind of curious if you're in touch with how glassware became important as a part of the cocktail, why the martini is in the glass, why, uh, you know, the mule is in the copper, you know, why certain glassware became important for certain drinks. Yeah, that's that's a whole, I mean, how long have we got? That's a whole, that's a whole, whole show. show. Is that a whole that's show? A, that's it, that's 100% a whole I show. Just, it's like, it, it, just in a nutshell, um, yes, they please. basically, they provide, they provide a whole different, um, uh, they provide a whole different way of consuming a cocktail. For example, the martini glass, one of the reasons why it's, um, it's in stemware, for example, um, is because it's, you shouldn't really touch um, the martini because the idea of the cocktail is it's supposed to be served cold. Uh, it's optimum temperature. So if you hold it by the stem and drink it, you're not affecting the temperature of the cocktail. Not getting warm. Just just in a quick, simple um, right. nutshell. The, um, the shape of, say, a champagne flute mm -hmm. was built so that we could have um, the right uh, bounce of the bubbles. Um, that's why it's shaped. If you look at um, Pilsner glasses and so on in beers, they all created so that you get the best effervescence in uh, the beers, same as uh, something like... Um, but did, uh, that, did those notions come uh, out of mixology? Mm. They came out. Of, they came out of bartenders having way too much time on their hands, and no, it came out with bartenders having a passion for what they do, really studying um, their uh, craft, and really wanting to provide the most optimum experience for their guests. For example, even um, the uh, the mint julep, the cups that it comes in, those metal uh, julep right. cups. When is when do you normally drink the meat julep? You normally drink it during Derby Day. You normally right. drink it in the south. What's the weather like? It is hot. bloody hot. Right. So when you hold that um, mint julep cup, it's frozen. It's cold. It straight away starts dropping your body temperature, builds up your anticipation for drinking your cocktail, mm -hmm. and then you imbibe it. It wouldn't look or taste the same in a martini glass. Right. Oh, 
That all makes sense. No apologies. All makes sense. Okay, Colin, you are um, you're a part of the Cocktail Kings on Discovery. That's you're correct. An author. You do all these different things. What yeah. is next for you? Where are we seeing you? Oh well, the really funny thing is we are working at the moment on just ensuring that the next generation of uh, bartenders have a platform that they can really shine on. So I'm working with some friends to see. Um, if we can work on another TV show um, and also looking at other editions of uh, this book. So there's there's a few things uh, going on. I'll have to swear, swear everyone's secrecy, though, so I can't divulge too much information. Okay. We, we, I sincerely hope that we follow up because I'd love to learn more. Yeah. Can you just please, before I'm going to wrap, I'm going to let you go, but I'm going to wrap up the show. Yeah. Please no uh, tell everybody where we can find you on Instagram and online. All oh, right, you can find me online on Instagram. I'm Cocktail Colin on Instagram. Ding me a message. I'll reply back to you. We could be live with friends and you never know. We could even get together and end up having a cocktail together. Well, let's file all of that under if you don't know, you don't know. Or if you don't know, you do know. Because we all need to know about our collective history to better understand how we eat, how we drink, how we dine, how we enjoy life. So, um, if you haven't had the opportunity to uh, read Colin and Tamika's work, I highly, highly, highly recommend you uh, pick up the book um, because it really does offer incredible information. Oh, and by the way, great cocktails, which we didn't even get into. So Black, Black Mixa, uh, Mixolence, A Comprehensive Guide to Black Mixology. I've given it to several people as a gift uh, because they love mixology and I thought the, the need to better understand the history of the cocktails we drink as well as the rich history that goes with it and uh, also knowing where you can go and have other good cocktails and make your own. So it all goes together really well. So I'm grateful for Colin for joining me once again to talk about what he's doing and the great cocktails that are out there. And of course, I thank you for joining me here on Industry Night with Nikki Nellis. You can follow me at N-Y-C-C-I-N-E-L-L-I-S on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter uh, for everything that's going on in and around the DC metro area. Of course, you wanna go to the list, are you on it.com. Tune in Sundays at 11 a.m. on 1500 to Foodie and the Beast. My husband and I have been doing this food and wine variety show, actually the only food and wine variety show on radio in DC for the last 14 years. Um, so there's lots of ways to stay up to date on great drinks and good eats. So um, thank you all for joining me. A quick reminder, as I do on every show, please take your kindness pills when you dine out. There are staff shortages and uh, there are lots of people out eating and drinking so remember every restaurant wants you to have a great experience they do not want you not to come back they don't want you writing a bad review on yelp they want you to enjoy so just take a deep breath get out eat out drink out and enjoy have a delicious week industry night with nikki nellis thanks for listening to real fun dc 